Well, we are a church that uh, does what we do because the Word of God comes and changes us. God's Word is really the, the life-giving source. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit is, is really the power that drives us as a church. All that we do and all, all who we are, really, and therefore what we do comes from His Word. And so gathering each week and being before Him and His Word is really important. And so we as a church right now are going through a series in the Gospel of Mark uh, called Amazed, and we are learning to be amazed by Jesus um, and follow him. Last week, uh, we talked uh, from chapter 8 at the end. Does anyone remember what we talked about last week? Because I was reminded of it. People told me this week, I, I couldn't mistake what you talked about, but suffering, yeah, death, things like that, right? We talked about that, and the, 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 it was Jesus' teaching that if you would come after him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And then he gives us all these reasons to do that because it doesn't make sense. Like, well, okay, well, I mean, what are we, a bunch of, you know, masochists? We want to follow Jesus because we don't like ourselves? No, we do it because on the other side, as we put our faith in him, and really Jesus dies actually and spiritually. Uh, I mean, as a man, he dies on the cross, uh, suffers and dies for our sins. Um, We don't necessarily have to die that way, but we die... Uh, when we turn from our sin and self, we die, in a sense, uh, spiritually, metaphorically, as we turn. And so Jesus is saying in that earlier section, if you want to follow me, you've got to die. This is part of following me. And then on the other side of that is life. And that's an important thing. We're going to see that theme this week. Uh, this week, though, we're, we're kind of moving on into chapter 9, and we're going to journey with three of his disciples as they have an amazing foretaste of the future glory of Christ and his kingdom. And this lesson, like many of the sections in this part of Scripture, is a lesson on discipleship. Discipleship is really following Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be like Jesus? So we're going to learn about discipleship. We're going to learn this, to tell you up front, that Jesus himself is the one whom we must listen to and follow above all others. Jesus himself is the one we must listen to and follow above all others. So let's pray, read his word, and learn from our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for who you are. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you for every word we have preserved in the scripture from you, our God, that we might be transformed, that we might experience life, that we might learn what it is to follow you and be like you. Lord, we ask you to come and do that right now. Would you come in the power of the Spirit? And teach us. Would you use me, Lord? I just want to get out of the way. I want them to hear from you. So would you help me serve you well that way? And Lord, would you, through us, do great and marvelous things. For the sake of your name, the sake of the lost, and our joy, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Follow with me in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I included verse 1 last week, but it also does flow into this week's as well. So I'll read starting with that. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, 
And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. God's word from Mark 9, 1 to 13. There are a lot of voices clamoring for our attention in our culture. A lot of voices in our culture, a lot of voices perhaps in our own minds and hearts clamoring for our attention. We live in the information age. We live amidst really a tsunami of information and opinions. And these, these would overwhelm us and do overwhelm us and, and, and the, in a way that would be inconceivable in the days of the New Testament, certainly. There's so much information. There's this just flood of information. According to the website, gogolf.com, and I think we have a project, uh, graphic to show. There we go. On average, over just 60 seconds, the following things happen. All right? Search engine, this is just 60 seconds, one minute. Search engine Google serves more than 695,000 queries. 6,600 plus pictures are uploaded to Flickr. 600 videos are uploaded on YouTube, uh, YouTube amounting to 25 plus hours of content. There are 695,000 status updates. Uh, 79,000 wall posts and 510,000 uh, yeah, 510,000, sorry, I'm saying under twice. 510,000 comments on social networking like Facebook. 70 new domains registered. 168 million emails are sent. 168 million emails in 60 seconds. 320 new accounts, 98,000 tweets. Uh, 13,000 iPhone applications downloaded. 20,000 new posts on Tumblr. Uh, 1,700 downloads of Firefox. Uh, WordPress downloaded 50 times, 100 accounts created on LinkedIn, uh, 100 plus questions asked on Answers.com, 1,200 plus new ads on Craigslist, 370,000 minutes of voice calls, of of minutes on Skype, 13,000 hours of music streaming on Pandora, and so forth. All in 60 seconds. Isn't that amazing? That all goes on. And that's our world, and we're part of it, aren't we? 
We are some of the ones who are downloading and, and receiving those emails. We live in this age where there's just information. There are voices always clamoring for our attention. And, and it, our culture has just been really transformed by that. How we process information, what we think, how we value things. It's really interesting that there's a, the phenomenon in all the information age that, that it's the edgy thing that catches our attention. That's a new ethic, really. So everybody who wants to get someone's attention, they've got to out-edge the last guy. And, and so there's these voices just saying, listen to me. And this passage of Scripture is given to us for just such a culture. There is one voice. There is one voice that is meant to stand above all other voices. And there's nothing wrong with these other voices. They're not necessarily good or bad. They can be neutral. But there is one voice that is meant to be heard above all other voices. And that's what this passage is talking about. This passage is teaching us that there is one voice, there is one person above all others that we are to listen to. And this command from God to the three is really a command to us who live now in the 21st century amidst billions and billions of voices that are clamoring for our attention. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. So we're going to take time just to go through this section of Scripture and learn about this. And I don't just want to fill our brains with the idea. That's part of it. That's part of the process. We have to understand the intellect's important. But I want us to change, perhaps, how we live as a result of this passage. So I want you to be thinking as we go along, what does my life look like? What are the voices I listen to? What's the media that I engage in? There's nothing wrong with that media. But what do I do? There can be something wrong with how you engage that media and how you live your life. So I want you to think about this. And I want you to think, how would the Lord, in light of this passage, speak to me in my life? And what adjustments do I need to make, perhaps, in my values and how I obtain my information and what voices I long to hear most? Okay? Does that make sense? God's word is to inform us and impart to us a new way of living. So we're going to take time. We're going to go through. We're going to learn to listen to him because he's the glorious son of God. We're going to learn to listen to him because he's the very focus of all of Scripture. We're going to learn to listen to him because he brings us life through death. Let's do that as we go through. This is six days later. Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his three closest disciples. He leads them up a high mountain. We don't know exactly where the mountain is. That's not the point. But uh, there is this theme in Scripture of the mountain being the place where we encounter God. And, and we see the, actually Jerusalem, the city of God, both the actual historical Jerusalem and the, the new Jerusalem, uh, are on a mountain. It's where we meet God. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt, he meets with God on Mount Sinai. It's a place of encountering God. So that's the idea here, is that Jesus is leading He's leading these three disciples, and he is going to encounter his father on this mountain with his disciples. I believe that he's doing that for 
his own relationship with the Father, but also for his disciples. He wants to disciple them. He wants to teach them things. He wants them to get things. Do we remember that the disciples are having a hard time getting who Jesus is? We talked a month ago or so about the whole idea of stages. We might have trouble getting who Jesus is. So this has been preserved for us for the same purpose, that we might get who Jesus is, that we might learn to listen to him. And so he is up on this mountain. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, this is in Matthew and Luke as well. Uh, Luke tells us that he was in prayer. Um, I, I believe Luke says that his disciples actually were asleep at the time. He's praying, they're sleeping. Uh, and in the midst of that, he was transfigured. And that's the word that's used. It's actually uh, the word in the original is where we get the word metamorphosis. So it's basically transformed. There's a transformation that goes on with Jesus. And he's no longer the Jesus, in appearance at least, that they had known on earth. He is different. He's transformed. It says that his, his clothing becomes white, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. As we look elsewhere in Scripture, uh, if you look in Matthew and Luke, it says that, um, in, in Luke it says that his face was changed too. And then Matthew says his face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. So his, his whole being, his whole body, shone with glory. And in and, and all these things, he's radiating light. He's showing glory. He's shining. It isn't just that he had like a really nicely laundered you know, set of clothes on all of a sudden. It would, you know, bleached it white, then the normal dry cleaner could get it white. You know, it's more than that. Way more than that. There's glory. There's light emanating from him, intensity. So what's that about? What's the point? I mean, wow, cool. But why? What does it mean? What's this whole thing of light? Why would Jesus shine with radiant light? What does that mean? Well, we can look through our Bibles and learn about this and look at some passages we have to to show. One passage, there's a number in Scripture, it, in Daniel, it talks about the Ancient of Days. So, so listen as we read through this. Uh, this is Daniel saying, As I looked, now the Ancient of Days is God himself. And in this context, actually, it's also talking about the Son of Man, which is wild how Scripture mixes the two. The Son of Man we know is God, but anyhow. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So this picture of God in Daniel is the same picture that we're reading about in Mark. Psalm 104 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Paul talks about God in 1 Timothy 6. It says this of him, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. His brightness, his glory is so great, it's unapproachable. Brighter than the sun. Brighter than anything you could imagine. So bright that you can't go too close. We can look in Revelation 2 where it talks about Jesus. In the same way, shining. So this transformation in Mark 9 is not just kind of a a gimmick or something cool. Jesus is revealing his full glory. He's showing his glory, who he is. 
he's showing that he is not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just another teacher. He's not an angel come in the flesh. He's not any of these things. He is God himself among us. God among us in all his glory. All his glory. That's what the light is about. It's the showing of his glory. And all that that means, and that means way more than we'll ever grasp. God himself, he is the eternal one, the self-existent one, the only one who exists forever and ever. He's self-existent. He didn't have to be made. He was never made. He's always been. He's always ruled. He's always wise. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the only creator. He is the one alone who is worthy of all our lives, our adoration, our faith, our obedience. He's all glorious. He's beyond comprehension. He's infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, infinite in glory. He is holy, 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 full of infinite compassion, love, justice, mercy, patience. There's no one like him. He's God alone. And that's what's going on here. Jesus is uncloaking himself and saying to his disciples and to you and to me, I am. That's what's going on here. The glory of God is showing. He wants us to know who he is. He wants his disciples to know who he is. He will not be domesticated. He will not be called a mere man. He will not be called a mere teacher. He's God. I love the stories in literature of great heroes and kings who are cloaked and hidden and then reveal themselves. And it's interesting, some of the stories, they're mistreated and they're, they're just treated rudely, even contemptuously, until... At some point, they uncloaked themselves. Do you guys uh, know, remember the Robin Hood stories? I love that story. King Richard shows up. He's in a full cloak, and, and they treat him as just some, uh, any old guy. And he endures it. And then all of a sudden, he takes the robe off, and you see the three lions, and they realize this is Richard, the lion-hearted. And they you know, bow their knees. I, I love the story in um, Lord of the Rings when Gandalf has been transformed. He's Gandalf the White. And he's cloaked, though, right? And he goes up to Saruman, I mean to... Uh, Theoden, and, and uh, sorry if you're not a Lord of the Rings person. You're probably like, what are you talking about? But anyhow, he goes up, and it's the same sort of thing. He goes up, and, and they think he's just old Gandalf the Grey. And he's, you know, he's telling Saruman to leave Theoden alone and stuff, and he's, Saruman laughs, and all of a sudden, whoosh, he takes the cloak off, and there's white light glowing. He uncloaks himself. I love those stories, but there's a story that's true. And ultimate here in Scripture. This is Jesus uncloaking himself. He's saying, this is who I am. I am God in my glory. And he wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that. He wants us to listen to that. And see that he is God. So let me ask you, Are you listening to him? Are you listening to one who is God in the flesh? There's no one like this in history at all. There's no one else. God didn't come down and, you know, another man. It's Jesus. There's only one. God the Son. 
There's no statements greater than these statements. There's no literature better than this literature. There's nothing truer, more fundamental than what's in here. Does your life line up with that reality, though? Or are there other voices you major in listening to versus the voice in here? We have to be discerning, guys. We cannot take the values of our culture for granted as okay. More and more so. It's always been the case, but more and more so. Our culture is pluralistic and it's just running along like a river after a flood. And we have to think, what does it mean to be a believer? What does it mean to know these things and understand and live in light of them? And how do we align our lives? How do we do social media? How do we do relationships? Who do we listen to? So who do you listen to? Do you listen to Jesus? Is getting in his word the most exciting part of your day or is, or is getting the latest Vine update or Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook status what is most thrilling about your day? Now, maybe those statuses are scripture and that's great. So don't mean to be a Luddite and throw out technology, okay? But does his voice captivate you most of all. This is God. This is God in his glory showing himself and telling us, listen to me in all my glory. Understand who I am and the brightness of my being. Well, just give you a little story from my own life. I um, was just praying this week and uh, just praying through some things and, and um, and I was just thinking and just thinking, boy, you know, I, I would just love to be able to have some more, more warm weather and sunshine. Um, and some of you guys probably feel that. It's been a long, cold winter. And you're probably like, who are you talking, you know, because I know I, Peg and I got to go away to warm weather and sunshine for about 11 days uh, this month. And I came back, but it wasn't enough. You know, back into the cold and the gray, and I thought, if, I, if, I could, if it could just be sunny, what can we do? Can we, you know, I don't know. How can we get more sunshine? And I just found myself like thinking, oh, I would just feel a lot better if, if it were warm now and sunny. That's my life. And I, as I was thinking through that and wrestling with it, um, I felt like the Lord said, basically, I'm the glorious one who shines brighter than the sun. Set your affection on me, not on the sunshine or the warm weather. Set your affection on me. Make being in my presence and knowing me what gets you excited, what sustains you, what helps you when you're feeling winter blues. Let it be me. He shines brighter than the sun. In, in Revelation, it, it tells us, verse 20, uh, chapter 21, verse 23, uh, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's not just metaphorical. The reality is, is the sun is a created thing by God who shines brighter than the sun. He shines in his glory. He lives in unapproachable light, okay? It's so bright you can't approach it. He is more glorious than the sun. And, and, and when he establishes, reestablishes, restores all things, he will shine. He will be our glory. But for the believer, that's not only yours on that day, it's yours right now. 
And he is to shine in our lives. He's to shine in our lives, in our relationship with him through the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to shine. He wants to be your light and your strength. So let him be that. Dig into this passage. Ask God to help you to see and to listen to him and delight in him. We ought to listen to him also because he's the very focus of all of Scripture. He's the focus of all of Scripture. In this story, Jesus is transformed, and the disciples wake up, and they find that there he is talking with Elijah and Moses. Now, we don't know how they figure that out, but probably by hearing them and so forth, they they understood it was Elijah and Moses. The Scripture doesn't contain all the dialogue that went on, just what God wants us to know. And they speak with Jesus about his departure, his imminent departure, that is, his death and his resurrection and his ascension, his departure, his death and departure. They're speaking with him about that. Now, I think we can read between the lines a little bit. I think they know exactly what's coming. They understand it, and they're there with Jesus talking about it. I don't know how much they know, because it says, you know, angels long to look into these things. I just wonder, did they know the whole deal? They knew enough, I think, to be eagerly talking with him about what he was about to do, his departure, that he was going to die, God the Son, die on the cross. Inconceivable, really, to think of that. Bearing sins of people, suffering the wrath of God to pay and make full satisfaction for his beloved people. Just, I mean, I'm sure they were just blown away as they talked, but they're talking with him about that. Now I'm reading between the lines, but I, I think that's what's going on. Well, you might think, well, why, why Moses and Elijah? You know, I mean, there's a lot of kind of cool guys in the Old Testament, right? Abraham? Why not Abraham and David? You know, or Isaiah? Or who, you know, whoever else? Why these guys? Why are they the ones they're talking? Well, they're there because I believe they represent, scholars believe that they represent the Old Testament. Moses was the one who led the people of Israel and through whom they received the law, the first five books of the Bible, the laws of God, the covenant of God, the laws of God that go with that. Elijah is a prophet and really the quintessential prophet. He's a man who was faithful. He was faithful to the Lord amidst a rebellious generation to proclaim God's word. So he is the prophet. So the law and the prophets really is, is a way to sum up the whole, whole, whole Old Testament. So these two men represent all the words of God expressed in the Old Testament. And they're, they're talking with Jesus. They're having a discussion with Jesus. So really, it, it's a picture of how the Old Testament connects to Jesus. And it's interesting to watch what goes on in the interaction this whole reaction, this whole experience is terrifying for Peter, James, and John. It's terrifying to see what's going on. It, it says that in Mark. It says that in the other accounts as well. It's very clear. And you would be terrified too. Um, the glory of God is glorious, but it's terrifying too. Because when you're in the presence of God, you realize how incredible he is and how small and unworthy you are. That's the sort of stuff that happens in the presence of God. That's why... The life and death of Christ is so important and central for us because that's the only way we approach infinite glory. Anyhow, they're terrified. And it's really interesting. Uh, Peter, I think he's a quintessential extrovert. 
And he doesn't know what to say because he's so terrified. So guess what he does? He says something. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, extroverts will tend to say something when they don't know what to say. So he says, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He says that because he's terrified, but it's not just because he's terrified. He has a mindset that he's bringing to that. He's trying to think of, okay, what do I do? How do we transition here? This is Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and hey, let's do three tents. And he has a mindset behind that that is off. We've been following the story, right? And he hasn't, he and others haven't quite got who Jesus is. And he is thinking somehow that this is, you know, something important here. We don't know all the details. He's probably thinking, hey, this is it. The kingdom's coming right now. This is the start, and I get to be here. This is great. Now he's going to bring the reign of God. He's going to vanquish the enemies of God. He's going to restore creation right now. That's perhaps what he's thinking. And he's probably thinking, Hey, and we've got a triumvirate here. That's what we're going to have. We're going to have these three guys rule the new kingdom. Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Three tents, three of them. And he's kind of putting them parallel to one another. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. All on equal basis. This, this holy triumvirate. That's probably what he's thinking. That fits with his lack of full understanding of who Jesus is. Fits with a a degree of understanding of God's promises in the Old Testament. And so he says that. He thinks that. But God makes it absolutely clear but that, that this is not at all his plan. That Jesus is not an equal with Moses and Elijah. That there's not going to be any triumvirate to rule and reign the new kingdom. He makes it absolutely clear that Jesus himself is the sum of all Scripture. He makes it clear by actually overshadowing them with a glory cloud. The, the cloud of God comes. It's not just any old cloud. This is a cloud like that shows up in Exodus 24, where it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This cloud overshadows them. They are, again, terrified. It envelops them, and then a voice of God. Can you imagine the voice of God? This is my beloved Son. And Luke records, he says, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all of a sudden, boom, all's gone. And all that is there, the only one there now is Jesus only. That's not just coincidence. It's not just simply how it happened. God is making a statement about Jesus. He's, he's telling Peter and James and John that Jesus is the focus of Scripture. Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the focal point of the law and the prophets. Everything in the Old Testament, either directly or indirectly, is about Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment. That's Moses and Elijah's orientation. And now God, the Father, has to visit them to declare what their orientation and what our orientation should be as well. Jesus is the sum and the focal point of all Scripture. We see that here, and, and I could take you on a journey through Scripture and show you many other places. Jesus has a conversation with two guys on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. 
A wonderful story to read in Luke 24. And in that conversation, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He took them through the Bible, and he showed them things maybe they had never seen, and interpreted the scriptures in light of who he is. Jesus is the central theme and highest authority of all scripture, the central focus of all of scripture. We are to listen to him. And we're to interpret and understand our Bibles in light of Him. When I was in college, uh, I took an American Lit class. I had to take a required class. So I took this American Lit class. They had a list of books to read. I don't know. There might have been, I think it was a book a week. So about 14 books, is that right? Um, That we had to read. Um, and what we did is we'd read and then we'd meet as a class, and there were two professors who team taught it. They'd sit up front and they'd just talk about the books. And it was an exercise in postmodern thinking, because um, what we would do is they would just have conversations about what the author meant here and there, and, um, and they would just like, the, and then the class would join in. I think it's this, this is this, this, meant, this meant, you know, spoke to me when I read this thing, and and it just was like all over the place, all sorts of ideas about what the authors, but they tried to psychoanalyze the authors and just all this. And that's what it was week after week, actually two days a week, I think it was an hour and a half long class. So guess what I did? I stopped going. <laughs> uh, I ended up getting a, an A minus in the class. We had to write two papers, so guess how many books I read? I read two books. Don't do that if you're in college, but that's what I did um, because it just was going nowhere. It was a waste of time. Everybody's sharing opinions about what the author meant what the point was, and this is what I think, this is what spoke to me. But we can do that with the Bible sometimes, can't we? We can read the Bible and say, this is what it's about. Or we can say, well, the Bible is a rule book. You know, it's got these commands, and I have to obey the commands. That's what it's about. Or the Bible is a book full of principles of how to live. If I apply these principles, I'll be successful. Or the book, the Bible is a theology book, which it is great concepts and ideas, and I align myself with that. Or, you know, the, the Bible is my, my uh, personal eight ball. Uh, remember those eight ball things you shake and it tells you what to do? You know, I just I open it up and what I'm going to do today? Oops. But the Bible's about Jesus. The point of the scripture is to point you to Jesus and to find your life in Jesus and to walk with Jesus and for us to do that together as a church to walk with Jesus. He is the point. He is the sum. He is the interpretive key for Scripture. So we're to line our lives up with that, with God's Word, to listen to Him, to focus on Him, and allow the truth of who Jesus is to interpret and set a context for all of Scripture. Final point. We're to listen to Jesus because He brings... Life through death. He brings life through death. There's a conversation that goes on as they come down from the mountain. Jesus tells them that he doesn't want them to talk about what they've seen until he's been raised from the dead. And as we've seen, this is because he knew that if people heard about some of these things, they would say, oh, this is the Messiah. And then they would, by force, try to make him their personal Messiah, their Messiah on their terms. And he wanted nothing to do with that. He wanted to be the Messiah on his terms, on God, the triune God's terms. And so he tells them not to say anything until he's been raised from the dead. Um, And then it says, uh, 
so he says, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. So, okay, good, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, we won't say anything. But then they, they start asking what this rising from the dead thing is. Rising from the dead, what's that? We don't get it. And they had some understanding because uh, they knew their Bibles, their Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about it. But they didn't quite get things. And so they asked, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why does it say that Elijah is supposed to come? And the scribes would have taught this, and it's in, it's in the scripture, Malachi, you can put that up. Malachi chapter 4 speaks about Elijah coming. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So they're saying, Jesus, what? okay, what's this rising from the dead? And, and isn't, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? And, and he brings repentance and he, he gets us ready for the great day of the Lord and they expected this is the day of judgment and resurrection. So before that resurrection thing happens that you're talking about, isn't Elijah supposed to come and, you know, and make everything right and then boom, the day comes? So that's what they're asking. That's what they're referring to. But they're again missing the points that they missed earlier. Because they're thinking all resurrection. They're thinking all kingdom victory. They're thinking, hey, show us the glory. Let's just go from there. And Jesus wants to correct them and help them understand, no, there's something else that needs to go on first. He wants them to understand that there's suffering and death before there's life. So there's this interaction he has. They say, why do the scribes say that? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then ask the question, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? What, so what do you do with this thing? It's written about the, the Son of Man, and we've talked about it. Suffering. And then he says at the end, but I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So the, he's correcting them, saying, guys, you're thinking Elijah is coming to restore all things, and it's just going to be hunky-dory, victory, and everything. No, Elijah came, and he suffered and died too just like me and just like you, if you're going to follow me, die to self and sin and live again in me. So he's pointing out the way of the cross, the life of the cross, the cruciform life as we talked about. And most important thing to understand in the cruciform life is that Jesus himself bore our sins on the cross. He died for our sins. We are to take up a cross, our cross, our suffering, that the turning away from self and sin doesn't atone for anything, doesn't pay for our sins. But, it, but it's part of the transformation that God works in our life. Jesus' death on the cross was as God, the Holy One, the Perfect One. And His death paid for our sins, all of them, should we turn and trust Him. But His death didn't just pay for our sins. There's more to the story. That's so important to understand. The point of the cross, the point of His suffering and death, is not just to atone and pay for our sins. That is glorious and that is wonderful. That is something to sing about and celebrate and be glad all our days. That is something to make the central focus of our lives. And when we wake up in the morning and we feel rotten to remember Christ died for my sins and rose again. I'm forgiven. As bad as I might feel today, I'm forgiven. I'm loved. I belong to him. And, and, and the worst thing that this world could throw at me is nothing compared to what I would experience apart from that grace, apart from forgiveness. So I have him. I have forgiveness. I'm set. He's mine. I am his. I'm forgiven. Let that define how you feel about your day. People talk about preaching the gospel to yourself every day, and that's just a good way to start your day. I have to do it. 
because I don't, I'm not a, I like getting up in the morning, but I usually am dragging and, and I can be depressed in the morning, so I have to recite and remember, Christ died for me, he rose again. But it isn't just about that. It isn't just about our strength. It isn't just about our joy. It's about God's glory. The cross was not like, you know, plan B. Oh, I guess we've got to do this and, you know, let's get through the cross thing and move on. No, God displays his glory in and through the suffering death of Christ forever. God's glory is shown in the wonder that God, the Son, God and man would die for our sins on the cross. When Paul goes to preach Christ, when he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified. The core of his preaching, the core of his declaration of the glory of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God is what? Christ crucified. This is how God shows his glory. And, and we, we cannot ignore the cross if we want to know the glory of God. He shows his glory in the cross. Revelation, if you look in Revelation, it's wonderful that, the, that God shows himself in his glory as the lamb that was slain. You can just, uh, we have Revelation 5. You can just look through that. A wonderful story. Then I looked and heard around the throne living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This wonderful passage in Revelation 5 is the worship of the Lamb that was slain. God in His glory. The God-man died, was crucified, was subject to shame, went the lowest point possible. God, this is a wild truth, God is more humble than you'll ever be. The humility of God is really infinite. Isn't that a wild thought? God shows his glory in his humility because, why do I say it's infinite? Because he bore your sins and my sins, lowered himself under us, became a servant to us, didn't just live his life as he did, serving and loving others, healing the sick, being compassionate, but went to the cross to bear our sins, to serve us at that level. The foot washing in John 13 is a wonderful picture of his humility, and he wants others to do that, but it's not, it's not the apex of his humility. The, the, the pinnacle of his humility, the low point of his humility, is bearing your sin on the cross, and God is glorified in his humility and in his wisdom and in his justice paying for our sins so we could be forgiven and his love through that listen to this one who died for you listen to this one who went through death to bring you life listen to him listen to Jesus if the band could come up as we close The listening that he calls us to is not just mere listening, not just hearing and acquiring information. It's listening that transforms. It's listening that leads to following. I love the story, maybe you've heard it, of, of the tightrope walker, Charles Blondin. 
guy in the 1800s, he strung a, a rope across the Niagara Falls, and he proceeded to walk across. Not only uh, did he walk across, but he, he blindfolded himself, walked across. He, um, he crossed in a sack. He crossed on stilts. He even stopped and cooked an, cooked an omelet on his way across. And after uh, one of his crossings, he asked the crowd if he believed that he could cross the river pushing a wheelbarrow. Everybody cheered, yeah, you can. So he did that, uh, pushed a wheelbarrow. Then he asked them if he could cross uh, pushing a wheelbarrow with someone in it. And the crowd cheered, yeah, you can do it. Then he looked at the crowd and said, who would like to get in? All this truth about Jesus is so that you will get in the wheelbarrow. Now, we don't have to. Life can be actually like being on a tightrope across Niagara at times. But Jesus is pushing the wheelbarrow. He is the Savior. And this truth in this passage and this call to listen is so you'll get in the wheelbarrow and listen to him and follow him and give him your whole life and trust him with all your life, all your values, all your lifestyle choices, all your priorities, all your media use. He is to be the one you listen to. So before we close in song, I just want to encourage you to take a minute right now. Just close your eyes and ask the Lord, how can I listen to you better? You might be someone who's just come in today and you're just investigating Christianity. We're glad you're here. And I just would encourage you to consider today being a day where you just say, Lord, I, I want to listen to your voice more than others. I, I turn now from my old lifestyle. I'm sorry for it. I want to trust you and follow you. Just pray that quietly. Say to him, Lord, forgive me. Lead me. For all of us, we need to be refreshed in that. And I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would speak to you. Call you to believe and obey and apply this truth. So let's take a minute to do that, then we'll close in song. <coughs>